Thanks for listening to the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry, here to help educate, motivate, and put you on the right path to take control of your health through weekly discussions on topics in the medical field, public health arena, and in your community. And now your host, Dr. Barry. Welcome to another episode of the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry. I'm your host, Dr. Barry Pierre, favorite board-certified internist, founder of drbarrypierre.com, as well as the CEO of Pierre Medical Consulting, helping you empower yourself with better health with the number one podcast for patient advocacy, affirmation, and education. This week, we have Dr. Petrina Crane, who is a board-certified emergency medicine specialist in the great state of New York. And she is here to talk to us about the need to address the discrimination that's in our healthcare system, specifically as a black female physician. We talked to her a lot about her struggles as she came up throughout the process of medical education and some of the uh, trials and obstacles that she's had to face, especially as a black female physician here in our healthcare system. Uh, She is a strong advocate for underserved communities, promoting diversity and inclusion, and she's also a brand new author. And we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, her recent contribution to the Chronicles of uh, Women in White Coats. And we're going to talk about her story and we're going to get a little bit into her business today. So like always, remember, subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a five star review if you have not done so already. Let us know how uh, today's episode was. And remember to tell 10 friends uh, when you get a chance. So you guys be blessed and have a great day. This podcast is sponsored by the Lunch and Learn Community Merchandise Store. Living out the motto, empower yourself for better health. At the store, you can get your favorite t-shirts, coffee mugs, even wristbands, and more. For a limited time, you can get 10% off your next purchase using the coupon code EMPOWER10. That's EMPOWER10, E-M-P-O-W-E-R-10. Just go to shop.drbarrypr.com to pick up your purchase and get 10% off today. And remember, 50% of your purchases will be donated to the Five Star Scholarship Foundation, a nonprofit organization for high school students. All right, Lunch and Learn community, just heard another amazing introduction for a guest I'm definitely very excited to talk to. Um, she is an accomplished author, emergency medicine uh, physician, and uh, most importantly, she's going to be talking about a subject that I think um, really needs to re- really needs to be screamed from the rooftop, especially as a physician, as a program director in graduate medical education. Um, this is something that I, you know, I really kind of keep a keen eye on, kind of across the landscape. Uh, Dr. Petrina Crane, thank you for one uh, joining the podcast. Uh, we're, obviously, we're going to talk about you know just kind of your journey. Like I love talking to my physicians; is really just kind of talking about their their journey as being a physician. Uh, but most importantly, uh, the fact that you're an accomplished author. We want to talk about like we're going to get into that business as well. So again, thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah, Dr. Pierre, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we get into the book, because obviously I know the book is important, right? But again, I'm getting to your business a little bit. Like, tell me, like, who is Dr. Crane and like, how did, how did she get to the point where she's at right now? Like, just in, in the glory. Okay, sure. So you want me to chronicle my life, like the title <laughs> of the book, huh? I see what you're doing. <laughs> well, my name is Petrina Larissa Crane. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, it's a great place. Great food, great culture, great music. Um, I have a big extended family, and that's always a lot of fun. 
uh, after graduating from high school, I went to college in North Carolina. I went to Duke, wonderful place, fabulous. So I'm a blue devil. So if you have any um, sort of UNC people listening, I'm sorry, we can't be friends. (laughs) (laughs) After my time there, I left Duke, uh, spent some time in Atlanta, loved Atlanta. And this is before I went to med school. And actually I returned home to attend my medical school at home, University of Tennessee. Wonderful experience. I probably, you know, definitely the barbecue is much better than North Carolina. I will say that. But I did, (laughs) I did leave the Southern United States to actually go do my emergency medicine residency in California in the Bay Area at Highland Hospital. A wonderful place, an amazing place to train. Um, I didn't start a tech company. I know people, you know, when you're out in the Bay, you do have that (laughs) impetus to want to do that. But I didn't do that. I did attempt skateboarding, but I did very much fail at that. Um, so it seems like oh, what I'm good at doing <laughs> is being an emergency medicine physician. So I left California to actually come where I am now to NYC, where I currently practice under these NYC skylines. And I take care of patients dealing with all kinds of issues ranging from coronavirus to gun violence and trying to teach New Yorkers how to cook um, Memphis barbecue. Ooh. And especially, especially being in New York with, uh, you know, obviously, with, with, depending on the lunch community, depending on when you're listening to this, you know, this is, you know, really the, the for you guys, really the downtick of, you know, the coronavirus, corona, uh, you know, just COVID-19 cases just in general, when it's like popping up and in, in, I'm in Florida. So we're actually like on the up, unfortunately. Um, so, so, uh, and I'm, I, especially a frontline worker being in emergency medicine. So definitely hats off and kudos to you. Uh, cause I know how hard you guys are working up there. So, uh, special shout out on top of everything that you're doing amazingly for that. Oh yeah. Thank you for that. Um, definitely when it hit NYC, it was an experience like no other dealing with coronavirus. So all my good wishes and good luck to the, the kind of the new epicenters now. Um, Because it's something that is taxing on you just mentally as a provider, but also emotionally, physically. um, It's suffering not just for patients, but also ourselves. So please, I always encourage people to, you know, especially when you're in the heat of it, you have to do your own self-care because it's going to be a rough time. So let's talk about, especially as as an emergency medicine physician, just kind of some of your your interests and, you know, that's kind of, you know, kind of led you really up to this point where you say, you know what? Like, I think I need to, like, I, need, I think I need to write something down. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Let me write something down. Well, in terms of, I do have a lot of various interests, and I do have an interest in health disparities and health inequities. And I think that interest started pretty much early on, just given, like, my background of where I'm from. Like, I'm from Memphis. It's a place where there's grit and grind and grace. That's what I have to tell people. But there's also this unique lens of growing up there because you have such prominent um, institutions that are reminders of issues with racism and also working against racism, such as the Civil Rights Museum. And it's unfortunately the location where our prominent civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, was assassinated. So I'm a Black woman now, I promise you, but I was once a little Black girl. And I can distinctly remember even then having experiences um, dealing with racism. So for example, when I was in kindergarten, I would be like six years old, and I did have a white male classmate who I played with, you know, many times before, um, all throughout the school year. And this particular time, I can't exactly remember what we were arguing about, but he became so angry at me, and we were arguing about whatever 
you know, whatever six-year-olds argue about. I think right. it was something to do with, <laughs> <laughs> with like a broom. I remember a broom and like the play center. And maybe we were arguing about who was going to, you know, do the sweeping because, you know, kids like to do chores, at least at that age, not when they're older. <laughs> um, and I just remember him just begin, becoming so angry at me. And he told me at some point that I was just black. And I argued with him because I was like, how dare you even call me that? Because I'm brown. I and my six-year-old mind thought he was insulting my ability to tell my colors, which I knew backwards and forwards, could even spell some for you. My teacher actually stopped this conversation, but I remember her and also talking to my mother about it and me talking to my mother about it in my little six-year-old way. But I remember her sitting me down at home to talk about the implications of the sentiments. It wasn't so much uh, the color of my actual skin, which I'm, you know, brown skinned black woman, but it's not dealing with a color of a rainbow. He was dealing with the colors of race and what that meant to be just black. So even as a little black girl, I've been confronted with these issues and it's just accompanied me throughout my whole journey in medicine. And I actually provide a snapshot of my experiences in the book, The Chronicles of Women in White Coats too. And my chapter where it's called Black Plus Woman Doesn't Equal MD. And so from dealing with my experiences, I feel like I have a voice that needs to be heard. I have, I'm a black person, I'm a black woman, I'm also a black female doctor. And unfortunately, I don't see my story being told all over different platforms, whether it's books or, you know, podcasting or radio, or TV or magazines. And so given the opportunity to talk about my story, I wanted to do that. And when I got the opportunity to work with an amazing group of other authors, on this book, it was a chance for me to actually sit down and write and tell my story, which is important to do. Because my family, like I told you, I have a big extended family. I mean, Christmas is like having a football team going over our different homes and stuff like wow. that. Oh <laughs> yeah, it's serious. <laughs> and my family raised me to understand you have a voice and you do have to use it. And especially when you have when you have a certain platform that others may not have to use that voice to affect change, then you very much should do that. Now, let's talk about Dr. Crane, especially as as a medical student and and as a resident. Was it like obviously your first experience? Unfortunately, was when you were six years old. Uh, but when you become like a medical student, your resident. And, and you're definitely aware of the world around you. Um, was, the, was there very obvious instances where you, it was definitely noticed that like, okay, I'm being treated differently because I'm black and a woman, which I think, I think a lot gets lost in the story a lot, especially, especially for women, because especially for black women, because I think a lot of times they get kind of lumped into the, the black physician struggle per se. But like a lot of times they're not even afforded the ability to say like, no, like we also have a struggle being a woman and black as well. Like, like was, there, was there any obvious experiences like the one that happened as you were six when you're a student or a resident or like, like how, how was that, that, that life, that lifetime? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Seems so long ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. And I tell everyone that I wear my white coat with pride. It looks great on my black skin. You know, especially if I wear some sunglasses, I need a pink stethoscope, I look wonderful. But <laughs> it doesn't and hasn't protected me from different forms of racism. And I can talk, like I said, a little bit more about that. But I first wanted people to understand and say, you know, that race itself is 
not scientific at all. It's a socio-political construct. And racism is about how a dominant race can use its power to devalue and disempower a non-dominant race and take advantage of the opportunities to benefit the dominant race. And so racism, unfortunately, permeates all aspects of society. And so medicine, unfortunately, does have racism in it. Some may be surprised to hear that, but medicine is a, is a part of society. And so, in, for instance, in medical school, I was so happy when I got accepted in medical school um, because I was going to go to a place where you learn about, you know, scientific concepts of human anatomy, physiology, disease, um, pharmaceutical treatments, and how to objectively process and analyze that information. But amongst doing this, some of my experiences in medicine were colored by dealing with racism. So for instance, I distinctly remember, I have a large SUV. I know, gas guzzler, sorry about that. Um, love the car, but I was actually, <laughs> I know, it is I got, not. I got, I got, I got, I got suburban, <laughs> so I, I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. Chad just said, right? <laughs> it is not, my climate change friends are like, you are part of the problem. So <laughs> gas guzzling SUV, um, but I love my SUV because I can, you know, Basically, you can put a tree in the back of it and do whatever you want. I can go to Lowe's and I'm like, hey, I'm gonna pick up a tree today. No problem. So for me, I actually was going to a school fair drive for an underprivileged area. And so I had spent time collecting all these different donations for this particular school of underprivileged children, who unfortunately most of them were African-American. And I, on my way there, I pulled over to the side. This is like a hot day. Um, in Memphis and I opened my trunk and I'm just organizing like the donations better because they were in these different gift baskets and presents and they were just you know beautifully decorated I'm so excited to deliver this gift to the children when all of a sudden a police officer comes over to where I am and I know this particular officer he's patrolled the area before and he comes up to me and he's sort of looking at me and I'm like, you know, naive. I'm like, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, I'm doing okay. I got a report that um, there's a black female breaking into this large SUV. And I'm like, what? Like, what do you mean? I thought he was joking. I'm like, this is my car. Like, everyone sees me in this car. And he's like, no, we're getting reports. That's you. And I'm like, are you telling me that someone just saw me? And again, I'm in my white coat. <laughs> I'm doing the things with, you know, the presents I'm going to give to my children, to the children. And someone has accused me of breaking into my car, my own car, breaking into a car, not realizing it's my car. And I just remember an officer, it was, you know, a fine interaction, you know, he left me alone. But I just remember like sitting in the car for a little while, just thinking about the experience. And I'm like, wow, I'm being accused of doing something wrong when I'm in the process of trying to do something right. And that's just an experience that very much stuck with me. And 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 that's so and that's so tough because you're you're like there is nothing you could have done differently that would have made that person who, who apparently said like oh no this person has to be like breaking in like because that was their only logical explanation of why you would be in that car uh, which is like dumbfounding. And I'm in my white coat. I'm pat you know organizing presents. I'm near the medical school, a place where I go all the time at this time in my life. And so, and at that moment, you know, the white coat didn't protect me. And so even though that may have been, and I don't know who called, for all I know, it could have been a colleague that called. It could have been just a random person off the street. Yeah, I, I have no idea who called, but the fact that someone called about that just sticks with me. 
So, and even as a resident, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I'm not going to like give it all away, but I unfortunately have had um, some experience where my being a Black female in medicine and being a doctor was questioned. So just for people to know, in, in California, when you're a resident, I know there's different per states. There's a time in the state where you even get your license before you graduate from residency. So you're technically, you know, a fully licensed doctor in California to do certain things after, for, for me, it was particularly after my second year of residency. And I'm seeing this patient in the emergency department. She's like an older white lady. And she unfortunately, you know, failed, slipped, had just a little cut, laceration that just needed some stitches, some stitches put in to be repaired and you know I see her I talked to her about this is what we're going to do and she just was adamantly saying to me that you will not touch me I don't think you have the credentials to do whatever you're talking about I need to see your license I need to see your degrees I need to see just just asking for all my credentials for me to do something that is a simple uh, medical procedure and I remember going to my um, attending at the time, you know, telling them the story. And I, this was a white female attending who I'd say very much advocated for me uh, in terms of saying, you know, you're being inappropriate. She has the appropriate credentials to do this. It's not how you should treat, you know, this is your, you know, she's your doctor. And the patient just adamantly refused. She felt like she felt like I was unqualified, but couldn't tell me specifically why she felt like I was unqualified and left without having her laceration repaired. Wow. So, she, wow. <laughs> So she was like, you know what? I'm not even going to get treated. Like, nope. She was oof. like, if it's you who's going to do it, I'm not doing it. And, you know, in that moment, you're like, wow. It's, you're in, especially, you know, I imagine the emergency room, you're going about your day and, you know, you have to keep going, like seeing patients. That's the unique exactly. thing about her, especially. Yeah, you, don't, like, you, you, don't, you don't even have the ability to kind of like <laughs> chill because like, all right, so I got like probably five more people and I got people coming on the way and EMS is. Right, there's a cardiac, there's a cardiac arrest coming. Maybe someone who's, you know, didn't make it to L and D as quickly as they should. You're dealing with all of that and have to deal with also racism in that moment. On top of that, was just a lot, a lot, and it can cause you to question yourself. That's one thing that, for me, that I actually have talked about that experience. So I'm like, wow, am I, am I good enough? I've done all these different things. I have all these different accolades. I've been valedictorian. I've gotten this award and that award. At some point, I was you know, an intern of the year at my residency, but all of the accolades, the white coat, all that stuff doesn't matter because for some people, all they see is my black skin. And for them, that has a negative connotation with whatever for them. And so regardless of me having all these accolades, being a doctor, you know, I'm a fully, I'm a fully licensed emergency medicine physician now, um, that doesn't matter. And so how do you navigate that? being a non-white doctor, how do you navigate the struggle and those questions and also dealing with all that and, and, and so that you can still take great care of all your patients. It's something that I've struggled to do, but it's something that over time that I try to develop and I do talk about this more in the book about strategies about how to navigate the twists and turns of racism in medicine. Now, question I have, and and, I've, and obviously I have a, you know, a kind of personal experience as well too. Do you find the the system at hand uh, being as big as a culprit as the patients we typically have to take care of uh, in terms of like where have you kind of felt a lot of the brunt from more was it like from the systems administration attendings or like the patients like who if you had to 
like if you had to, I guess, choose one facet? I think for me, my experience has unfortunately been more so on the patient side. And I guess fortunately has not been so much on the administrative side, but in terms of, you know, what beget what, I think you have to just think about going into understanding how racism is so entrenched in medicine. I mean, you think about different, um, ex- different um, examples of systemic racism, such as, you know, you about the Tuskegee study where you had black men who didn't get any informed consent before they were um, made study participants for this natural study of syphilis, like the course of syphilis. There's numerous documentation about the grave robbing of black corpses and bodies after funerals, like in the 19th century in Baltimore, to sell to medical schools to do different anatomical dissections. There's a history of even certain diseases being thought to be attributed to um, Black people and the slaves. So for example, there was this disease that was particularly thought to be a Negroid disease, and it's called drapedomania, where slaves were running away. And that's what that disease process was called. And also this um, disease called cachexia africana, or African wasting. And this is when um, white people were deserving their slaves, they were malnourished and wasting away and also eating dirt. And we know that this is pica because obviously among um, all the different nutritional deficiencies we could imagine um, slaves had, they also had like an iron deficiency. And, it's, and so that was looked at as a uniquely Negroid thing to have pica. And that was not a human thing to do. So you could imagine instead of having human treatment for such a disease, so such as, you know, maybe a white plantation owner would give the slave better food. They addressed um, patients who were suffering from pica harshly, like even putting iron masks on their face and even decapitating some slaves that were dying from the disease as a lesson to others, like, don't you eat that dirt. And so this is just entrenched in what we do, and it comes up in different ways in medicine. Slaves would even be whipped harshly, as it was thought that Black people, their nervous system was different, and so they could endure pain more. And you have those sort of notions that even continue today. There was, I think, a study back in 2016 where it talks about the undertreatment of, of Black patients, and because there were thoughts among our trainees, especially like medical students and, and um, residents about these false beliefs that Blacks had thicker skin and so forth, they didn't need as much medication as a white individual. And, and that's probably the sad, especially that one was like, like amongst the others were like, were crazy because it, it, it's so permeated within the culture of medicine that medical students like have been ingrained with the thought process, right? So it's not as if something like, oh, they've been out for a few years and they kind of got, you know, washed in the system. No, no, these are people who, you know, they were, you know, pre-meds two years ago and all of a sudden they already have the school of thought, right, that, you know, we require less pain medication. We don't hurt as much. And because of that, like, I don't have to give them, uh, you know, what they need. And I see it a lot, especially down here with our sickle cell patients, where I just like the bias is so evident uh, that like, uh, oh, no, they're just they're just seeking. I'm like, no, they're actually sickly. Like that's like it's not that's that's the seeking is not a thing. Right. Like it's it's one of those things where like you have to treat the pain and you you have to remove your bias uh, from it. And it's so so like you said, so rooted and ingrained in our just the culture of medicine and how we train over and over and over again that it seems almost foreign you know when when we start saying like hey you know what like we kind of feel just as much pain as y'all feel like we would like you know to be treated the same way that people like look at you crazy 
Yeah. And it's crazy. And this, you know, this is influencing even, you know, other aspects of health, like for racism, there's um, literature on increased maternal and infant morbidity and mortality, where even if you have, you know, like a, let's say you have a pregnant black woman, a pregnant white woman, you control for all the different factors, socioeconomics, whatever, control for everything, that there can be poor outcomes for that black mother. And there's a thought that it's this racism that is influencing maybe on it even an epigenetic level, um, these sort of outcomes. There's data about, there's more psychological stress and even substance abuse in communities that are um, much more affected by systemic racism, which you could imagine, for example, including, let's say you have a racist encounter with a law enforcement individual and the kind of psychological stress you can have for that. There's literature about heightened food insecurity, being feeling that you can't go seek access to certain foods because you're under this umbrella of racism. And even we've even seen um, differential use of potentially life-saving testing and medication, such as even the use of um, a clot-busting medicine for strokes um, that was less given to Black patients as compared to non-Black patients. And so this stuff is very much deep and entrenched in medicine, unfortunately. And it just contributes to, you know, like I mentioned to you, one of my interests, you know, health disparities and inequities. And those are, you know, nice terms. You know, we say disparities, you know, inequities, right? <laughs> right? It's, it's, they're just polite terms for us to say that there are segments of the population that are dying and they're dying more than other segments of the population and what is causing that. And so I think you have to also look at um, how disparities and inequities relate to each other. They're very much intertwined, but they're different. So if I can just take a minute, like health disparity, the way that I think it's Healthy People 2020, they defined it as it's a particular type of health difference that's closely linked to certain social determinants of health. So such as economic, social, environmental factors. And health equity is the principle to reduce those health disparities. If you can look at health equity, it's like the social justice for health versus like health disparity is the metric we use to measure that progress to achieving better health equity. So if you can reduce, you know, health disparities, you can have improved health equity. And just going back to, you know, I'm from Memphis. And so you're under this umbrella of just thinking about civil rights issues. One of the last acts that um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself did was being involved in the Poor People's Campaign for the Sanitation Workers of Memphis, how they were asking for just human treatment. They were being treated like subhumans. They wanted equal wages. Um, good working conditions. And so health equity, if you look at it for me, the part of that campaign in the 1960s for that sanitation workers is that I am a man. And trying to fight against racism in medicine is like our health equity. It's like our poster saying, I'm a man, I'm a human, and I deserve, you know, equitable medical treatment. As, as, a, as, a, as a program director myself, and, you know, being kind of being very involved with just graduate medical, especially graduate medical education, but really medica- medical education in general. When, when I see and I look across the board, right, and I see the, the students, right, or just the makeup of students. And I, I see the landscape where as a black male and black uh, woman, right, that there just isn't many there, right? Right. To even mm-hmm. kind of start the conversation, um, and 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 that's why I want to ask, like, what was like when when you looked around? I can tell you in our class, right? I went to Nova Southeastern. We had a class of two hundred uh, total, and there were seven of us. 
right? And and like at that time, it was like lauded as like a successful year for for black students in, in the class because there were seven of us because they weren't used to having that many. And 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 I'm like, wow! If I had a two hundred seven like like you know, raises eyebrows and like has people jumping up for a joy. I don't even want to know what it looks like across the country. Like, like what, what was it like, especially coming up as a you know, medical student, especially as an emergency medicine resident, what was like, as far as just a general makeup across, like what, what was, what were those numbers looking like for you? Well, unfortunately I had a similar experience. I can remember being in medical school and my class was probably about that much, maybe a little bit less, but you could fit all of the Blacks, for instance, Black and, you know, Latino students in like one room and <laughs> we were like barely um, double digits. And you can imagine, it's, it's interesting you bring up the story about how like, you know, schools are like, yay, there's like seven or eight of you. <laughs> like, yeah, like whatever we're doing, that's working. But I mean, is that, I mean, not saying not to diminish that success, but is is that enough, you know? What we've noticed in like the last few months is like you said, we've been screaming from the rooftops that, hey, like there are these health disparities, there's you know, health inequities, there, there's not a, there's a lack of diversity in medicine. And, you know, medical organizations are, at least through their statements, are acting like they want to really answer this call. And I'm not saying they haven't been answering this call, but maybe what you're doing hasn't been good enough. It's like you're just doing just enough to get certain results. And are those results you're getting, is that even good enough for the communities that you serve? And I don't think it's enough. I think that um, institutions and schools can do more, such as, for example, you know, in terms of addressing like anti-racism, why can't we, why is that not part of like for the medical school curriculum? You know, for instance, like I basically was a fairly new medical student when Trayvon Martin case happened and Trayvon Martin was unfortunately murdered. And so you can imagine like going in to school with your backpack and an anatomy book is about to break your backpack. And I remember one of my professors trying to take a moment to actually just speak about uh, that case because it was like a social determinants of health um, related question and sort of the pauses in the room about, oh, we can't talk about that here. That's, that's not the place. And just being like a, a black person, like how is this not the place? Like where, where is not an appropriate place to talk about this issue because just like I said, racism is intricate in medicine, it's intricate in society. So to ignore these issues or to um, not approach them with the same zeal as we do as someone who comes in like for an emergency room and I think they're having a heart attack and just, hey, it's just like, go. Like that's the same sort of zeal and um, reaction and stuff that we should have for um, treating health disparities and also addressing like racism in medicine. In my residency class, I would say that um, we were, there were 12 of us, um, two of us were black females and for, you know, I, where I went to residency, it's a diverse place. Um, and that was like a good year for them, but at the same time, there's only two of us. And there were even subsequent years where we didn't have, you know, maybe we had one, um, African-American person, for instance, or one, um, person of color. Um, and I can distinctly remember even not from certain administrators at the hospital, like having a discussion about, it's almost like a, a competition about um, what kind of diverse person we should take this year. Like, can we do a black female who's also identifying the LGBT community or should we get like white female LGBTQ? And I'm like, hold on, hold on. This is not like a competition in race. 
<laughs> like, it's not like insert here, take this one out. Like, why can't we have like all these different people in this residency if that better reflects the type of doctors that we need and also better reflects also um, our patient population? Like, it shouldn't be like a race. So what I think emergency medicine is like some medical specialties where there's a dearth of uh, emergency medicine providers of color. And there needs to be a more concerted effort. And there has been, I think, over time to talk about that and address that and what we can do. But I need people to, for in terms of medical institutions, to think about like their efforts, they've been okay, but have they been aggressive enough? And if you're not quite sure what to do, maybe ask those who maybe navigate this best better, such as myself or you, about what are our ideas about how to really, really address this problem. Because I feel like, you know, there hasn't been much change. Like if we only make up 12% of the population, for example, Black Americans, then that's pretty much been steady. We're still under the uh, amount of percentages we should have for Black physicians. And there are some specialists, I think, that do this better than others. For example, there are more Black um, OBGYNs than other specialties. And that's something that has definitely changed over time. So what did they do to get to that point to have um, doctors who, you know, look like their patient population. And, and I love that, like, as, as a suggestion, you say, oh, maybe they should actually talk to the people who are, like, disenfranchised, because it, it sounds common sense, but they're actually not doing that, right? And, and, and that's probably the sad part, right? They're not talking, like, if I, if I want to see how can I, you know, get more Black women, right, into the system of healthcare, right, and into the system of becoming medical students and being becoming physicians and becoming attendings in respective fields, like, maybe I should, like, go to them and see, like, hey, what's stopping them in the first place? And, and surprisingly enough, they don't do enough of that. Like, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, like, yeah, you say it, like, it, your mission statement says it, right? You have an office, you know, of that diversity, but, like, what, like, what are they actually doing and, and What's, what, what do we need to do, especially those who are already in the field, who are already on the other side, really to kind of hold their feet to the fire? Yeah, exactly. Because if we're able to hold their feet to the fire, I feel like well, we would have more things like increased education on racism, its components like discrimination or microaggressions, and then more exploration about the effects of racism and what it can have on society, such as you know, even thinking about all these different protests and the different protesters who experienced um, pain or any sort of medical condition after being subjected to police riot weapons, like why can't there be research on what happens to them? Um, and then also we need to actually implement the different things that we're talking about, like strategies to deal with, you know, anti-racist strategies, strategies to deal with things like, you know, policy on interactions with law enforcement, even the emergency department, all these things where if I feel like, and I do see, I do feel like, maybe the latest things have happened with George Floyd and other things in the media that you are seeing this call from different medical organizations that, wow, we really do need to address this. I know like my residency has very much um, tried to do that over the last few months and I applaud them and appreciate them for that. But that sort of zeal just needs to be bigger. I mean, think about like we're dealing and, with this and coronavirus constant, pandemic. And constant. And constant, yeah. <laughs> I mean, dealing with this pandemic, right? It's been going on for... I know when it hit New York, like it seemed like February, just all uh, February and March is just like a blur. And we're dealing with this pandemic. And like we as a country have gone to 
town trying to address coronavirus, the PPE and the messages and campaigns and getting resources and getting this and getting that. But black people have lived under, well, and not just black people, but you know, non-dominant races, if you want to say, have been dealing with the pandemic of racism and its effects for way longer than coronavirus. It's been here way longer. And so I need that same energy applied to what we can do to better, you know, um, get rid of this racism that affects our communities and it's affecting our health. I mean, it really is killing us. I really do believe that. Oh, no, I, I definitely agree. I, I think it's, it's one of those things, especially when you talk about the, the residency. I remember, um, you know, especially with Joy Floyd, when they were, you know, the, a lot of the protests that, you know, go on and actually still go on. Most people don't even realize it because they just really stopped showing it on TV. Um, we actually did a, a kneel-in uh, at our hospital. And I remember the support from our administration was more of, okay, we won't stop you uh, from doing it. Well, we won't necessarily be out there with you doing it. And I think it was, it was just me and probably like, I think probably like eight or nine of my residents uh, who, who just went out, especially, especially cause where I'm in, I'm in Wellington, Florida. So uh, pretty well, pretty well uh, dominated as far as uh, just the white population from majority. Uh, so I, I, I knew that we probably wouldn't get the support from admin per se, cause obviously they got their people, they got to, you know, answer to, uh, but I, I, at least I appreciate the fact that they didn't stop me uh, from doing it. Like it, cause that probably would have been a different conversation. Cause I don't think they would have been able to do it anyways, but at least they were like, all right, we're not going to like, you know, hold, hold it over you in that regard. So I think you, you said it right on the head. Like you have to hold these people to the fire and we, we definitely need that same energy. Um, you know, every single day and every single policy and every single way. And I think what happens a, a lot of times, the stress and burden is put on, uh, you know, people like us to have to do it. But like, if it's just us, right? Like it's like, we, we don't, the numbers unfortunately speak for itself. We don't even have enough numbers, right. To, to make the movement. So we, we, it needs to be an inclusive effort to say like, nah, nah, nah. Like, you know, you know, being black, and then being a woman and being a being black male, being a black woman, it's it's problems, right? And and we all need to get behind this because this is a problem that is affecting uh, just not just them, right? Not just their population, but everyone in general. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting when you um, comment about how no one specifically stopped you from doing um, what you did in order to honor what's going on, and. I, that's that always gets me because I feel like for certain, you know, administrators, it's been that whole thing where we won't say no, but we're not saying like with a resounding like, yeah, yeah. But I think that goes back to thinking about how, yes, like race and racism can be sociopolitical, but racism is in medicine. Like racism is as American as apple pie. Like if that's our <laughs> classic symbol, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say it, of American culture, like it's that because it's in its lockstep in medicine. Like when slavery became institutionalized, so did this subsystem of health for blacks for hundreds and hundreds of years that I would say still continues today. There hasn't been a period in American history where the health of blacks was equal to the health of whites. And so I think if you understand that racism is sociopolitical, but also what I encourage people to look at racism as what I've mentioned, it's like a social determinant of health. And so we as medicine are addressing other social determinants of health environments like violence like climate there's still that there's a i feel like a different zeal and energy to addressing those things when racism is a social determinant of health so understanding yes it has a socio-political um 
beginnings, but it's b- even bigger than that now. So as a as a medical administrator, I shouldn't feel some hesitancy if my doctors and my medical students and my residents want to go out and address how to address racism, because that is what we should do. Because in order for us to end these health disparities and health inequities, you have to look at it with that lens, not the lens that is completely sociopolitical. And I think if we had that, then your administrators would feel more comfortable about saying, hey, let's go for that versus sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just remember it being so funny because I remember when I, because, you know, I think a week or so had went by and, you know, I didn't get, I didn't see no email go out. I didn't, I didn't see anything. I was like, hmm, okay, this is weird. All right. And, and mind you, like, you guys got a black program director. Like, like if you don't think, like, like it should be mentioned, right, that's, that's an issue. So, of course, I shot him an email. I'm like, hey, like, by the way, like, I, I haven't really heard anything, but, like, you know, me and the residents were planning on doing this. We just wanted to make sure, um, you know, to see if admin wanted to do it, too. And they're like, oh, well, you know, like, you guys can do it. But. You know, and we'll be there. Um, and then when the day came, no one was there. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, okay. So, so clearly, like someone above said, like, nah, 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 we can't, we can't do that. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. It's like, no, like if you had gone and say, hey, you know, there's violence. Like all these people got shot up last night. We need to stand up against violence. The parking lot would be full. Racism is just in a social determinant of health. It should be the same energy. You know, like I said, like Americans, we don't run away from problems. Like that's part of our apple pie culture, so to speak. Like we face um, problems head on and we make solutions. So we need to make our response to racism. I would say, think of it as a new ingredient in that apple pie recipe about what makes us uniquely American. That if we would come together and just respond to this with the same energy as we have done other things, that's something that, will benefit us all. I mean, I even, you know, tell people, let's say you are the most racist, whatever person in the world. I mean, there's even data that, let's say you come to the emergency room and you're having pain, um, that a non-white doctor may actually achieve better pain control for you faster than a doctor who's white. There's actually some literature on that. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe you're a KKK member and that's fine. Like you, in terms of that's your, that's what you want to do. Like, I may not agree with it, but that's what you want to do. But hey, maybe benefiting, maybe beneficial to you to have a non-white doctor in that moment when you come in and maybe you broke your leg from, you know, doing some clan rally. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's funny. So how, so especially especially moving forward, right? Especially with with the book, and you know the the the, the obviously the motivation clearly was there. Um, how do we right like help try to improve? Uh, not only just kind of the discrimination that we see in healthcare, uh, but like kind of address like just some of these unfortunate like numbers gaps, right? Like it's, you know, it's especially, especially for black women, right? And then again, I, and I, I stress that enough, right? And I, I talk about this a lot during, uh, for a lot of my residents. Um, this year, um, this year, you know, I was very fortunate that we actually had all women uh, in our class, but three of them were black. And I was, I was, of course, jumping for joy uh, for that because like it's definitely been a push of minds just to get really more people who look like me uh, in my program. Um, how, how do we address that? Like, how do we like what like what should we do? Let's 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 say me me I'll I'll even say me as a program director right? Like, what should I be doing more of to try to help promote you know the black female physician? I would say think about developing a strategy that targets 
racism and all this different like components. So for instance, let's just say, I try to think about it in different ways. Like there's maybe internal racism, you know, maybe, and I think of it as like, maybe you've been flooded with these messages, like for instance, a black female, like maybe you're hypersexual and um, you don't have the IQ for this. And, and you're, are you internalizing and believe that? Like, do you believe? Like when I was having those instances where I encountered um, racist individuals, like, am I actually good enough to be a doctor? Like encountering like that internal racism that, you know, you especially, I think our physicians of color may actually experience it sometime in their lives and recognizing that, that that's false. Like you are good enough. And so what strategies you can do to actually um, combat that internal racism? Is it, you know, I encourage, like one thing I talk about in the book is um, how to foster your own resiliency. So does that mean staying up on the literature? Does that remind you that, hey, you're a great skateboarder, something that I can't do? Like whatever you need to do for your self-care, like with the things that you need to do to combat that internal racism, I think that's also important. So then also thinking about on the individual level, which is you are experiencing the racism from another person. I think number one, recognize that for whatever reason, we all have our implicit biases and that person is coming at you with an experience and you're coming at them with that experience. And acknowledging that this doesn't make you feel good, but just reframing the whole experience. Even for all my patients that, you know, I fortunately hasn't been a lot of, it has not been a lot of them, but for those that have been racist towards me, I've been able to, I think, take great care of them if they, you know, except for the case in that lady who left like I did take good care of her but I mean she didn't want me to continue right, to take she, care she of her she didn't stay for the rest of my care but just you know reframing the issue and just say hey this is a chance to maybe I'll change their life today um, maybe they'll at this moment say hey maybe these black doctors aren't so bad in this particular specialty or whatever so taking it in that moment dealing with that individual racism how to how to address it and then I also think systemically, I was thinking about more from like your perspective and graduate medical education and people who are in administrative responsibilities, how do we address the systemic racism? So you can do things to really address this, such as if you, you know, increase education on it, like actually put it in your curriculum, have a case conference about a morbidity and mortality um, an M&M that happened that there was racism implied in that because there are, there are cases of that. Um, actually have a clinical repository of resources about how we can all work to be more anti-racist. How about actually have funds to address anti-racism research for different things? So I talked about like if there's um, under treatment of black individuals for pain, for different reasons like that came out of research but you have to actually someone has to think about that and take the same great grant money that you may get to study you know whatever intervention and for whatever reason and apply it under that lens of how i can address anti-racism and then also just on i would think related to systemic racism on a macro level like from doing the research and doing the education and addressing you know all the internal and individual racism how you can make macro scale intervention. So can you take what you're learning on that level to something like health policy and helping to inform um, all our different political leaders of how we can create a better anti-racist community overall? I love it. And that's, and that's, first, of all, first of all, I definitely appreciative of the 
really the kind of the full scale, you know, uh, you know, approach to it all, because it, like, I think you said right on the head, it, there is so many different levels that need to be really addressed, really say like, Hey, this is an issue addressed and then worked on for us to really get kind of the, the wide scale um, results that we're looking for. So, so definitely thank you for, you know, really such an amazing conversation that uh, I think needs to be had more often. Um, and, and really, especially amongst like folks outside of our circle, right? Like it's like, it, it needs to get to the point where it, it's not just happens to be two black physicians who happen to be having this conversation, um, but a, a, a mass effect, especially in, in, in regards to healthcare, like we're having it now in regards to law enforcement and police interaction, um, but like I, I told my residents, I said, unfortunately in healthcare, we're kind of in a glass house. Right. Like it's, it's there's no reason for the color of my skin to make it so that like I have higher rates of blood pressure and diabetes and, you know, maternal rates are higher and pay. Like there's no reason that my skin color for some reason determines that. Um, so we are living in a glass house as we're looking and seeing especially the landscape that's happening now around us um, where law enforcement and just the police interaction uh, is, is being really scrutinized. And I think there, it, there needs to be a day where, where medicine and the healthcare system is really brought to the table and say like, Hey guys, like what are y'all doing over there? Cause clearly um, something's off over there too. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I tell people as us as doctors, like this social activism, if that's the way people want to think about it, this is not unique to us. Like, this is not something we haven't done before. This is not uncharted territory for us. Like, we are doctors. Like, we are the same people who have given you uh, DeBakey and um, have come up with this intervention for this and this intervention for that. There's no reason that we can't collectively, Black, white, whatever, come together and unite ourselves to come up with plans to address racism and medicine and how that also will just permeate out from the rest of our society. And I really think us doing that will help decrease health disparities and really work towards achieving health equity. And again, I also encourage people to, you know, get our book, um, The Chronicles of Women in White Coats too, because, you know, for my chapter- Where where, where can they they get the book from? Tell them, one, tell them, I I would love to hear, like, what's the one goal you would love for them to really pull specifically from your chapter? But like, more importantly, like, where can they get this book? Like, where can they read this? And you can get this already best-selling book. I'm just putting it out there. I'm not bragging. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) At, At various sellers with Amazon being- one of them, also available from uh, the Chronicles Women in White Coats uh, website. And then I would also say, what do I want people to get from the book from my particular chapter? I would say, where you're reading my chapter, I like a lot of analogies as you, I guess you can see, it's just how my brain works. And so let's say you're, you know, you're driving, right? You're in your car, your bike or whatever. But in my particular chapter, I take you on a personal road trip in medicine. That's the trip we're going on. And we're exploring the intersection of race and gender. And so in my chapter, you can see what forks in the road my perseverance is going to come across. Like what pit stops am I taking in my identity and what twists and turns is my resilience encountering. And so my words are a vehicle and you're the passenger or the driver, but you can use that to explore those different issues as you go along with me on my journey in medicine. And I'm hoping that from that chapter, you'll be able to better um, recognize and understand like racism and how you can better navigate this system in order so we can all come up with strategies to deal with the 
effects because I would, you know, give me something else to talk about. I would love, you know, if we have an anti-racist society, I have plenty other things that I can write and talk about. And I would love to just put this to rest. I love it. And before I let you go, now what now what's next for Dr. Crane? Like obviously we're 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 a best selling author now. Right. Like what what's what what should we what should we expect out of you? Where can people follow you and you know just kind of follow your journey as well? Like what give give us those details. Well I tell people I'm a doctor but I'm also a creator. Um, I love to write, so I'm working on some other pieces, whether other books in the future, so look out for that. But you can also find me in the physician journalist space. I really like to try to educate people about health topics, so look me up. You can find me in different uh, media outlets actually doing that, Um, so look for more of that. You can find me. You know, I have a Twitter, but I don't really use that much, so might as well. I'm trying to learn how to use it better. have an Instagram. I'm it's my trapmd09. That is my handle. So people can follow me there. And sometimes people ask me, like, you know, why do you call yourself that? But you know, I'm from the South and I grew up on music like, you know, hip hop, crunk music, and I listen to everything. I'm from Memphis. I love soca, I love blues, I love I have EDM. I listen to a lot of different things. But for trap music for me, um, and for people who don't know, it is a genre that does talk about different things and a trap is like a rundown house where people are selling illegal things like drugs and stuff like that. So there's a lot of negativity that's associated with, you know, a trap house, but this is a genre that itself has created a million dollar industry and there's nothing glamorous about the negativity, but how you're able to take negativity, negative experiences, um, negative environments, and even use that to make yourself and those around you better. I mean, I think that's amazing. And it's that energy and that hustle love trap music that I appreciate and that I very much identify with because I work to bring medicine and knowledge to all people to the streets where those streets are well paved and they have, you know, nice gardens and ivory tower communities or it's a wrecked, you know, rocky path with dilapidated housing. And so that's me. Uh, hey, lunch in the community. Me and me and Dr. Crane might be like low key family because like everything she would say, I was like, oh, that's yep, that's me, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> you made me a cousin. It, it yes. That's okay. <laughs> so to have big families, so, uh, yeah. have to compare last names and get a yes. family tree and do that whole thing. Love it. Again, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, really to, you know, talk about a conversation that needs to be had that will likely need to be had next month, the month after the month. I like, it'll probably, it's, it's just something that's need to like happen. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you're able to really take some time, put some pen to paper and, you know, help educate a community that really needs to hear it and really needs to hear it from our voice. And I'm, I'm glad they're able to hear it from a voice like yours. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for providing this platform. Like you said at the beginning, like screaming from the rooftops. And this is an issue that, you know, if we're screaming so much, we lose our voice over. That's one thing. But it just needs to continually be in the public conversation. You know, what I hate about sometimes uh, with these specific incidents, like things can happen, like with George Floyd or um, other other people like Breonna Taylor, and then they disappear and for a while until, you know, the next thing happens. And there's like uproar it almost looks like this crescendo day crescendo crescendo day crescendo and like we need to stop doing that it just needs to be a constant just straight horizontal line of just we need to address racism and it just needs to be as important to us as breathing every day 
Thank you for coming to the end of the episode. It is yours truly, Dr. Barry Pierre. I want to give my undying thanks to you for your support. Just getting to the end of the episode means that you at least enjoyed today's episode. Hope you were empowered by today's episode. Please remember to share this episode with at least two people that you know that would be greatly affected if they did not listen to today's episode and if you have not already done so subscribe to the podcast leave us a five-star review especially on apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave a review leave a review there because your support is so 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 valuable for what we're doing here on the lynch learn and everything with pierre medical consulting and if you have not done so go ahead and join the listserv to join the listserv is very easy just grab your phone right now i'll pause Join the listserv. You want to text Lunch Learn Pod. This is all going to be one word Lunch Learn Pod to 44222. And you'll be on the listserv. You'll know exactly when new episodes are coming out. You'll know about new episodes before they actually come out because I usually tell my listserv members, hey, this is what I'm working on. This is the guests that you should expect to hear for the week on. Thank you, guys. You have a blessed day, and I'm going to see you guys next week.